Talk YA now presents News of Nightmares Part 2 from the Strange the Dreamer series by Lonnie Taylor. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast, and we just finished another series. Um, We finished Muse of Nightmares by Lonnie Taylor, which is the second Strange the Dreamer book. That was a really weird way to say that, but you got it. (laughs) (laughs) The second book in the Strange the Dreamer series, and boy, was that a wild ride. Oh my goodness. I think I texted you at one point. And I was just like, I'm on this emotional roller coaster. I like, ah, uh, but I loved it too. It was, but it was so much. Remember how we were like, we have half a book and it's just. How yeah. will we learn everything? Yeah. And it just like got crazy. Yeah. At one point I texted you too. And I was like, I need to put this book down. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much right now. I had just like, I had like a girl's weekend and I was on the plane and I was like, feeling all these emotions and it was just it was a lot it was good but it was a lot and I love how it connected to Daughter of Smoke and Bone series a little bit like they're not they're separate stories you don't have to have read one or the other but they have like a legend that bleeds through both that was one of my favorite things too yeah it ties them all together we learn about the farers who were cutting holes through the worlds to travel and then at the end I, I almost like wanted to stand up and start cheering, but at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious, because at the very end, when Sarai and Laszlo are like traveling, whatever, and they're they're going on adventures, and she's like, who knows, maybe in the course of our adventures, we'll meet someone who makes bodies for dead people. I know. And I was like, oh my god, they're going to find Carew. Yeah. It's so cool. It was perfect. Yeah. I love how it all ties together like that. And it's even more, it kind of reminded me, you know, how we had those two very different stories, both based in the Grushaverse. Oh, yeah. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like that style because it's so different from Daughter of Smoke and Bone in a lot of ways. But the cool thing about this was it wasn't even the same world. Like it had one legend, but it, you know, it was about like all these different worlds and all like it was just so cool to like build all of that stuff and have that connection, but still have it be such unique places and and I bet we're going to get more stories because I kind of didn't like how it ended, like, the end, or is it? And I was just like, oh, okay. But I, I feel know. like we're going to get more stories about the different fairers crossing through worlds. I, I hope we get the story of Thakra. Is that her name? The angel who went the other way and was, like, cutting through worlds yeah. the opposite way. Like, I, I hope she just keeps continuing telling stories in different worlds because, I mean, she already built the world essentially as like a whole but there's so many different little segments of inner worlds that she could build out and it's like it could go on forever yeah well and to your point it'd be cool to see now that we have some people traveling between worlds see some like it would be cool if we saw one of the gods spawn in a different world Mm -hmm. in a different story or something yeah I all the crossovers but I also I'm just I'm still like just overwhelmed by it all (laughs) I know, me too. And the other thing that I thought was really cool, I texted you this too, was um, 
the entire time I was reading this book, I was like, what are these weird symbols in this book? And what do they mean? Mm-hmm. And why are they here? And then as I was reading it, I was kind of like, okay, this is the language of weep. And then at the end, they had that key. So you could kind of like translate yeah. them if you wanted to, which I had no interest in doing. But someone on Reddit did. And they translated all of the symbols at the beginning and end of the book. And they're all the different worlds that exist. Uh-huh. And the coolest thing is some of the words are authors' names. Yeah, so read off some of them. I'm trying to find that text you sent me. Okay, so Saba is one. Saba Tahir wrote Ember in the Ashes. Um, Roshani Shakshi wrote The Star-Touched Queen and the Gilded Wolves. Emily Suvada wrote This Mortal Coil. Um, Pakat, C.S. Pakat wrote The Captive Prince Trilogy. So, like, they're yep. all authors. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are. There was one from another book that... Oh, Bardugo. Oh, Bardugo. Yeah, there was Lee, yep, Bardugo. Lee Bardugo. Yeah, that was really cool. So I, I'm wondering if she just decided to put in authors' names that she liked as kind of like a homage to some of her favorite mm-hmm. writers, which, like, what a clever thing to do. I love that. When I saw Bardugo, that's when I was like, Wait These aren't just random names. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because like a lot of them didn't really mean anything to me, and then I saw Saba to here, and I was like, oh my gosh! And then I saw the other ones, and I was like, oh my god, I know that one and that one and that <laughs> one, and it was like a really cool Easter egg. I love it. I kind of I meant to actually go back and do a little bit more research because you know at the beginning I didn't want to spoil anything for myself, but I wanted to read more about Lonnie Taylor and connecting this story with the other story and her future plans as far as writing goes and some of that because I just I mean we talked about this before but I just it's it's so enjoyable to read her writing Mm -hmm. so I have a friend who sent me um, a podcast recommendation it's the Barnes and Noble YA podcast oh and they do uh, interviews with a bunch of authors that's great I know so I want to start following along and and listen to it because he just sent me one on Holly Black, who wrote The Cruel Prince and The Wicked King, which are awesome. Uh-huh. I Listen, I hate fairy books, and I loved these books. <laughs> I haven't read them yet. So yeah, I think that would be a cool one to start listening to. I was like, oh, this will help us with our research a lot. I was thinking at one point, and it still may be in the future, but it would be so cool if we ever got to interview authors. But then after my encounter with Marissa Meyer and how awkward I was, I was like, that would actually be the most uncomfortable podcast to listen to because people would be like this girl doesn't even know how to talk to people i know i'd be the same way i would there's not enough xanax in the world for me to be able to get through that oh man okay okay well where do we start with the second half of muse of nightmares okay i was actually trying to remember where did we actually leave off for the first half where was the half point um it was when they she was in minya's dreams right we already knew kind of right Sarai went into Minya's dreams and we learned about the two Ellens. Yep. Okay, so we got more... We dug in more to the Korra and Nova backstory because we had only seen Mm -hmm. Korra's gift. No, Nova's gift. I can't even remember which one's which anymore. Korra. Korra's gift. She was the one who got taken. Yep. Um, So we found out Nova's gift. So she's a pirate, which means she can steal other people's gifts from them and then use it against them or use it in general. Yep. So she was basically left behind. Which... Did that surprise you? I thought Scaphus was for sure going to kill her. Because he was like so brutal when he was like almost killed her sister to try and get her gift to trigger. And then it was this like they were terrified of this gift. And they just like sent her back to the Arctic world to go slaughter walruses. And I thought 
it seems strange that he just let her go like that. Well, I think it was twofold. One, if Cora knew that he had killed her sister, she would have, like, that was her only... Oh, it was his only bargaining chip. Purpose for living or helping. Yeah. yeah. And then two, without Messertham, to, it, which this country that she lived in never saw any of it, she was useless, right? So she wasn't a threat that way. And I think he never imagined what she would be able to do given the right incentive. All right, you've convinced me. And honestly, I mean, it's sad, but she crosses all these worlds and does go to save her sister, but she's too late. So technically... He was right. He never had to eat his words, yeah. <laughs> or at least not for that. But um, but yeah, so we see she at first is sad to be left behind and is kind of waiting for her sister to come back for her. And then... She gets sold. She gets sold for like five coins to this old man. Yeah, her dad sells her and... But yeah, then she finds out her sister needs her help, and her sister is able to send her a little bit of mesertheum. Is that even how you say it? I feel like I always make up words. Mesertheum? Yeah, that stuff. It's auto-correcting in my phone now, which is really funny. Like, I'll type in any word now, and it's like, mesertheum! <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so she sends her the diadem, right? Like, and she's basically says, come and find me. Yep. And what I thought was so sad was... These two sisters were separated for 200 years, right? It takes it takes Nova 200 years to try and find her way back to yeah. Cora. And the entire time, it's not like Cora has this nice life either because she's basically being used as a slave by Scathis as his spy since she has that eagle that can go mm-hmm. out. She's an astral, essentially. Yeah. Um, and it was so sad that the only thing that kept them going was thinking that the other one was going to save them or that they would see Mm -hmm. each other again and that was just like so heartbreaking to me because finally the worlds do collide like nova arrives and she's too late like she's cora's already been killed during the carnage but i loved that they still got their moment with the help of sarai's gift they were able to like make their peace and say goodbye and it was so sad and it was so hard because i think this book did such a good job of all the people you want to be mad at or, you know, like all the bad guys, if you will, like are so well developed that you also feel for them. And it, you know, like, it's like, Nova, you're acting ridiculous, but also, oh my goodness, like you've gone through such a horrible life to get here. And like, it's kind of understandable that she, you know, like like it's just, there's so much going on. It's like, you're like, no, don't kill Sarai. But also I get who you are and why you are you. Um, and even, you know, we see Minya was like, you know, we thought an unredeemable sociopath. <laughs> and even she comes around. Like, it's just... Everyone has their own motivations. Yeah. There are definitely opposing forces. But it's kind of like um, the opposite of vicious and vengeful, mm-hmm. where we have a bunch of bad guys mm-hmm. who are against each other and no good guys. This is like, we have a bunch of good guys who just don't align with their individual purposes. And watching that play out was... They just need to, like, talk it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have, they have people who, like, would be on the same side if they would just sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But, yeah, then, I was, yeah, that part, I think that's where I started getting overwhelmed was, like, when all of a sudden Nova, like, bursts through that orb mm-hmm. and she's, like, attacks Feral and uh, Sparrow and, like, steals their gifts. And I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> like, well, oh and God. I wasn't expecting it to go that far. Like, I thought that would be a really big scene, but I thought, especially once we realized they were, her companions were the kids who had been taken, yeah. 
before. Like they were essentially all oh, God spawn right. and Minya, they recognized her and she recognized that, you know, with that connection, I was expecting that to like, it to be like crazy. And then like, once they talked, it would all be good. But instead it was like, they were crazy. And then when they talked, she like took the ship and left the world and she attacks them with the metal wasps. I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, what do we do now? <laughs> That's true. Because like, it's, it's kind of weird that like, uh, Kiska is her name, and Rook, they were with Nova for so long, they were so loyal to her, but at the same time, like, they remembered Minya, and they were just like, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? Like, yeah, they were kind of caught in a weird place, too, because they were so loyal to Nova, but didn't want to hurt their friends, their old older friends. Although, I had some questions about that, even. Like, I get that Nova saved them, and they were young, and they spent 15 mm-hmm. years with her, but no, didn't they know they were going to try and save Korra, who they all hated because she was the one who took them and put them in this prison? Maybe they didn't know that that was Korra. Yeah, maybe not. It was just, but I supposedly Nova and Korra look so similar because remember Errol Faye true, was like, true. thought he saw Korra. He was like, I killed you or whatever, but... Well, maybe they re- recognized that she was a slave. Like, Scathis is the one they all wanted to get and kill. He was the one calling all the shots. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe Nova told them more of the story. But again, I was just like, oh my goodness. And to be fair, it was a long time, Mm -hmm. especially considering how young the kids were when she saved them. But it was only 15 years of her 200 plus year journey. So I guess there was a, like, Nova went through a lot of stuff alone before that even happened. But, but yeah, I was, I mean, like, I kind of was, I was not expecting laszlo to be stuck with her and them not to actually re- like i thought that there would be that moment in the inside and then they'd like make mm-hmm. peace when Menya woke up but instead it just kept <laughs> escalating and kept escalating and i was like ah now laszlo's in a cage yeah and like people are dying and coming back to life and everyone's an enemy you know all the people of weep are there or all the soldiers at least and are see the gods spawn arrive and people are dead and that was awful when um uh, oh my gosh, when she sends the wasp sting after Azarine and Errol Fane. Oh, and kept replaying it and replaying it and replaying oh it. Oh my gosh. And it like stabs them together and she, oh. it was just such a horrific scene. But then like as soon as I recognized that Rook's gift was to play things in a loop over and over, I was like, okay, they can just go back and break the loop before they die. Like, yeah, exactly. I wasn't super concerned about it because I kind of figured that... That would happen. Well, and I was waiting for Sparrow to use her gift because we we saw her practicing it. And I actually, as soon as they were like, we need some piece of Mesothium, whatever, the God's Metal. Mesothium. I can't say it. I don't know why I can't say it. Um, I remember that Laszlo had that piece, but I was like, it was like driving me crazy. I was like, he doesn't even know what's going on. Someone get Laszlo. I mean, not Laszlo. Um, but. Thion? Yeah. I remember that he had the piece from Laszlo's blood or spirit, but. That was such a scary scene because that's the part where I was like, I have no idea if Sarai is going to FNS or not because, uh, and Minya like would have saved her, but it was just, you could see her feeling so helpless too. And she was like, I don't have my gift. Like, like, and there was a point where she she like let it go and she felt peace because she no longer had to hold all those spirits. But then... Well, and the re- she kept them all to protect them. Yeah. And then when she realized that using her energy, like, she let them all go, even though she still didn't necessarily trust that they were safe because she was just trying to keep Sarai alive, even though 
we saw her almost let Sarai have a nest before and we knew there was still, she was still bitter about some things, but it was family. It's her family. Mm-hmm. I was like terrified that Sarai was going to fade and she was so close to fading. And like, I also love that Sion was the one who like ended up saving the day really because he brought back the Miserium yeah. like in the nick of time. And he didn't even really understand why she needed it until like the last minute. And it was just cool because he was always the one who yeah. was like, yeah, people are going to sing songs about me. Like, I'm going to be the hero. Like, he was so cocksure and arrogant. And then, like, he actually really yeah. did save the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he made it back. He made it up to la- all the bad stuff he did. He saved Laszlo's love. So even though Laszlo isn't yeah. one to hold a grudge, I feel like they're back to even or something. <laughs> yeah. And he's just so much more, he's so much less insufferable now. Like, yeah. he's really, like, Thion has grown so much. Well, and he's made friends, and he's admitted yeah. his faults, and he's got hope for the future in a different way now. Not like the future owes him something, but like, right. yeah. And I think he and Ruza are going to get together, but they're just, like, taking it slow right now. Yeah, what do you think about Feral and Ruby? Um... I don't know. Are they done? I'm kind of like not, I've never really been a fan of Feral and Ruby, especially since like as soon as they land on Earth and they start seeing like other men for the first time, Ruby's like <laughs> going after them hardcore. <laughs> I kind of felt a little bit bad yeah. for Feral. Like there was a moment where, doesn't she meet someone who she's like technically related to? And she was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah, like her half brother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was just kind of like, mm, I don't see them lasting forever. Yeah, but I'm so glad we've got this ragtag team of adventurers. I mean, honestly, I'd love to explore some of these other worlds and see all this stuff, but I'd even, like, go on this quest with them now. Like, I feel like it's the the beginning of another great story idea to just be on this flying eagle with, you know, this grandmother and all these (laughs) half-godchildren and some soldiers, and, like, it's just so funny to me. I love it. And their mission is so cool. They're trying to find, like, their siblings and their kids. Yeah. I hope Shuela finds her baby. Yeah. And I just, I I love the idea that, like, the gods were the ones who enslaved the children. Because we learned that that's what Scathus was doing. He was, like, selling the, finally, we learned this, that he was selling the gods' bond um, as slaves so that people could use their gifts. And I love the Mm -hmm. idea that, like, their parents were the ones who enslaved the children. And now their children are going to free them. Like, it's just such an, it's such a cool circle, like, yeah, because they say all the time, like, we are not our parents, we, we can be better, we don't have to be monsters. And like, they're really taking on that challenge, uh, and that burden of like, we're gonna undo all the bad our parents did. Yeah. And I love that. Well, and I mean, there's no love lost between them and at least their God, half of their parents, you know, like how, how crazy to just have kids and sell them into slavery in other worlds and I, like, still don't really get him, Scathos, Scathos. I don't either, because I wrote this down. I was like, why does a god need money? Like, Well, and also, why did he, like, destroy the world he came from? Like, before he left, I forget the name of the world, but where they originated, he, like, destroyed the emperor and, like, but then he left the world. It wasn't like he wanted to be there, and he just, like, kept going and, like, picked right. weep. I was kind of like, I felt like there was a piece of something missing. I, like, didn't quite get his motivation. I didn't even know there was a war. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. He somehow overthrew the emperor. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, he started selling the Mm -hmm. children. At the beginning, he just was doing it for fun. Like, he was just a sadistic rapist, really. Yeah. Which, that part, I guess, I 
uh, believed based on the little bit we saw of him. But I also was a little bit curious because him and Isigal like actually had a weird, twisted relationship of some kind where they liked each other. But I was I was kind of curious more about these where these other gods came from because we knew where yeah. Korra came from and we knew a little bit about him, but we didn't. There were four others. We didn't see any of the others. Yeah. That's a good question, actually. I wonder if they were slaves like Korra was. I know. But or if it, they were like Isakol, where she was kind of in on it. Yeah. And it might have been a little bit of both or something. I, but yeah, I was curious mm-hmm. about that. I always, I mean, you know, I always want some short story background information about people and all this stuff. But also, I'm glad there was nothing else in this book because I, it took so much out of me. It was a lot. <laughs> <sighs> yes. The one thing we didn't learn, though. So like, okay, I feel like we learned enough that I'm very satisfied. Yes. Especially, like, how it ended. They're going to try and get a body for Sarai. Mm-hmm. Minya's growing again. They're on this journey. Um, things that we didn't learn that I wanted to know. Number one, I really wanted to know who Laszlo's mom was. That's true, but... I don't know why I was so fixated on that, but... Well, I mean, it makes sense that it's someone at Weep. It's almost like, wouldn't that be more interesting once you realize that your mom could be alive and down there and you may have met her? But I also, like, we didn't meet enough people in Weep for me to, like, be like, oh, it might be so... You know what I mean? Right. But... I just thought it was going to come into play and, like, be important. Yeah. I mean, and it it is a good point. Like, I think that would be... For someone who's never had a family, yes, he's kind of made this family and he does have some half-siblings, but he was mm-hmm. so excited about having half-siblings. How much more crazy would it be to meet your mom? Maybe that'll happen in another series. Yeah. I hope so, at least. And maybe we'll get Laszlo the second. Yeah, we'll have to see Errol Fane and Azarine's baby, um, Laszlo the second, <laughs> Laszlo Junior. Is that how you call it? If it's a, your your daughter's girlfriend's boyfriend's half, your ex lover's other Oof. lover's son's. That's complicated. Bastard. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that family tree's a little messed up, but totally. I mean, I I did like that we got Laszlo's origin story with like how mm-hmm. Cora stole. Laszlo because of his gift and sent him through the portal and again she was trying to save herself to save her sister and was just too late but it ended up kind of working out and I love that Cora was able to be the one to get through to her sister and be like I am not proud of how I acted there like Mm -hmm. I was bad I deserve to die don't keep this going yeah no more vengeance which I feel like was something that you know Sarai was kind of trying to tell Minya something similar but in a different way because she wasn't taking responsibility for anything but you know we saw different people try to break this cycle and be unable to so we it was nice to see their connection was able to it you know broke through to her yes and I mean yeah and like what a beautiful scene when Sarai was like we're both astrals I can take this eagle into myself and like because the eagle was like an echo of Korra yeah well, it was like die. one of Sarai's moths that didn't die in the sun you know it's like the one piece of her and it was like the her sister was the only one she would have listened to so Mm -hmm. and to give her that peace I mean yes she went and killed herself which was unfortunate but I do feel like she was at peace because all she wanted in life was to be with her sister I forgot about that I know and I did I felt bad and Sarai felt bad but I also still felt kind of like it was fitting not that I, th- I mean, but like it, yeah. it was believable because she had 200 years yes. of this, you know, she'd just been like torturing herself and she really didn't have anything worth living for. And I sort of feel like it was a release of a burden for her to 
Yeah, kind of. Because she, cause she was like, that was her goal for 200 years. And yeah. then she finally was the, at the end of her journey, and she was like... From the time she was like 17. It's not like 200 right. years of her 500-year lifespan or something. but Right, yeah. right. And her life before that wasn't all that great, no. even with her sister around. So tragic. It was. It was. It's so it tragic. Oh, and I loved Sarai, too, changing from, you know, she went from this being used as a weapon for nightmares to not just going into people's dreams, but really wanting to try to reach these people who, in their own mm-hmm. mind, and help them overcome these bur- Like, I thought there was a lot of cool stuff with that imagery and stuff there as well, and watching her kind of come into her own and see her power as a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like when she went into Nova's mind. Yeah. And she, she went into her dreams, and she... Oh, and she sees all of the people that Nova killed, like, trapped in mm-hmm. ice. And she's trying to bring... That was like, crazy. She could also be, like use her power negatively in that situation or be really sure. freaked out, but she's like trying to bring her peace. And then it actually is able to by bringing her sister through the dream. But, oh man, there was just a lot. But it was really impressive how it did all connect. I always want more, but I didn't feel unsatisfied. I just am still so curious about some of these little things. Agreed. That's a good way to put it. <sighs> what was your favorite scene? Oh my goodness. Um, to see in a movie or to read? To see in a movie. I would love to see when Nova comes through with her gang and everyone's using their powers and mini- like just everything that happens in that room when the two mm-hmm. groups interact and no one knows what's going on. I feel like and all the different powers happening and just all the emotion there and seeing the different relationships. I feel like that would be because, you know, you see different people trying to protect other people and trying to I think that would have been the best scene to see play out. Yeah. What about you? I really liked the scene when, and it's kind of like that, I liked when she releases all of them, when Nova releases all of them except Laszlo, and she like makes the seraphim form a fist and like just tosses them to earth. Pulls its heart out. Yeah, it pulls its heart out and then like tosses them to earth. I just thought that was like, visually that'd be really cool to see. Well, I also think it'd be cool to just watch it fly away through this hole in the sky. Yeah. (laughs) Or even in... All the cases, whenever the ship changes, you know, different um, mm-hmm. metal smiths or whatever they're called, that power, who kind of form it in different ways. And so it's like an angel and then the angel's moving and then it's like sad when they're in the other world. And then at the end of the day, they're like, okay, how do we pick a new <laughs> look for our battleship or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. And they pick the eagle. But uh, yeah, I like that too. And I also like, okay, I'm like all over the place, but how Cora, as the astral, as the wraith, um, kind of made up for some of her sins by helping the children and keeping them alive, you know, giving them the seeds. Oh, yeah, giving them the seeds to so they wouldn't starve. Stuff. Yeah, I feel like she kind of made a little bit of peace for her actions as well. And totally, it ties into how, remember um, Laszlo, when he's five and playing, sees that eagle? Yeah. She was like watching over him. Yeah. And that could have even been before, well, no, because that was right when Weep disappeared, right? Or that was... Yeah, that's when the name of Weep disappeared. It was right before the carnage. Oh, we learned the yeah. new na- the name of Weep. Yeah, what was it again? I, I had it and I deleted it. Asmar... <laughs> uh... <laughs> it was pretty. <laughs> Amazur... Amazur... Okay. Or something like that. You know me, I can't pronounce it. Uh-uh, yeah, none of us can. But... So that was actually related to my research a little bit, that idea of the ship changing 
how it looked. And because you know how they talked about like if I had the ability to control metal, what shape would I make? And like everyone, did you research transformers? Yes. No, I researched <laughs> razzle dazzle. Do you know what that is? What? No. That's the U.S. term. That sounds like isn't that something <laughs> like a? I don't know. That sounds like a website <laughs> where you make like homemade invitations or something. It's a, it's a children's art project. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's maybe better known as dazzle camouflage. Ooh. And it was used in World War One. So in World War One, the Germans had all those U-boat submarines that were sinking ships with torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, over the course of the war, they sunk more than 5,700 vessels and killed more than 12,700 non-combatants in the process. Whoa. So in war, like camouflage is a thing on land, but... If you're at sea and you have a giant cargo ship that has smoke billowing out of it, how do you hide it? Right? That's that's a question that someone might ask. I'd so like to know. this um, guy, Norman Wilkinson, who was a Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve Lieutenant, but also in his previous civilian life was a painter, graphic designer, and newspaper illustrator, came up with this idea that instead of trying to hide the ships, you should make them conspicuous. So, oh, like hide it in plain sight. Yeah. So he would he took like ideas from different Cubist paintings of like Picasso and stuff, and would paint the ship's holes like different stripes and swirls and abstract shapes and patterns or non-patterns. And the idea was making it because so the U-boats when they were underwater to not be spotted, all they would do would be stick up the periscope and look for like a second mm-hmm. to try and identify ships. And if they looked and these patterns would basically throw off their ability to perceive how big a ship was or what kind of ship it was or even the where, how far away from them and what direction it was going in and stuff. So that was um, kind of the idea that he had. So other people at this time were talking about, you know, like, let's paint ships white and hide the smokestacks and canvas and blah, blah, blah. But um, his idea was basically high visibility but confusing patterns and it's actually it's kind of based off of camouflage in the wild too so it's sort of a similar idea to why scientists think zebras have stripes and stuff because when predators are looking at a herd of zebra it's really hard for them to distinguish one zebra from the other and how many and where they are and stuff like that because it's just kind of especially in a quick look you know hard to hard to distinguish so um yeah it's called pattern disruption i guess wait so how effective was it as a battle strategy so there's not a lot of good evidence over how effective this actually was, but it was um, accepted and adopted a lot, if that makes sense. So yeah, so by October 1917, they ordered that all merchant ships should get special paint jobs, the British did, and in the U.S., mm-hmm. Wilkinson went to meet with um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in March of 1918 and set up a camouflage unit headed by an American Impressionist painter. And so by the end of the war, they said um, over 2,300 British ships had been decorated with dazzle camouflage. Wow. So they got painters to paint them? Yeah, or at least painters were the like ones who came up with the design. I don't know if they were the ones physically painting them or not. But they, yeah, they were taking a lot of this like impressionist and cubist hmm. paint style at the time and like transforming it into like a war tactic. And, and it worked? Well, so yeah. um, <laughs> they said they're... When the U.S. adopted Wilkinson's scheme for both merchant fighting ships, there is statistical evidence to support Wilkinson's technique. So they said for the U.S., 12,000 or 
1,256 merchant and fighting ships were camouflaged between March 1st and November 11th, 1918. So that's like 10 months. 96 ships were sunk. And of those, only 18 were camouflaged and all of them were merchant ships. So none of the camouflaged fighting ships were sunk. Hmm, so it did work. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's like not super convincing that that was what saved them. So there's also some other stuff going on at the time. So they... Um, would use this technique, this dazzle, razzle dazzle, dazzle camouflage, in combination <laughs> with other. Dazzle, though. I keep thinking of that song from Chicago. <laughs> well, okay. So the first thing I looked up was like I was trying to find like unique warships, or I don't even remember what I googled at first, but I kept seeing all this razzle dazzle, and I like was ignoring it because I also was like, that's not like a real thing. And then I found this like history.com article about World War One, and I was like. I was actually kind of fascinated because these ships look pretty cool too. It's sort of funny. Yeah, I want to look them up now. Um, but yes, they, there were some other things that were, you know, multiple tactics were being deployed at the same time. So things like zigzagging to try to avoid mm-hmm. torpedoes and traveling in different kind of convoys where you hide the bigger obvious ships in the middle and you have the ships that are more dangerous to submarines on the outskirts and things mm-hmm. like that. So... Um, and in World War II, the U.S. actually would al- would also do something kind of similar with the decks of ships to try to confuse enemy aircraft. Oh. So regardless of how effective it might have actually been, it was a common practice before like electronic surveillance technology made it n- not very helpful. But I thought it was really interesting. So they would paint the decks of their warships to like look like the sea or something, so they blend in. I actually don't know. I think they were still doing the razzle dazzle. I think it was like supposed to be confusing <laughs> pattern stuff. But then, so this was briefly related at one point. Then I started looking into other kind of unique ships that have been used by the U.S. Navy over the years. And some of them were kind of really interesting. So I thought this this might be because I'm like from Arizona or something. But in 1855, Congress approved a plan by Jefferson Davis, who was the Secretary of War, to import camels as pack animals for the U.S. Army in the American Southwest. Oh. So this wasn't great, but it was... They thought that they could be used as like a long-range mounted force to drive out hostile Indians in the country, but um, oh, oh no. so they there was a store ship they the USS Supply that they like refurbished to bring all these camels over to the U.S. So that, you know they had to like add stables and hoists and yeah. all this stuff to transport camels, which they didn't normally do, and. They had to, like, modify stuff to get, like, the humps of the cam. I don't... Just, like, they did all this crazy stuff, basically, to bring these camels to Texas. <laughs> but the plan was never fully in- implemented because of the Civil War. So most of these camels ended up being sold to zoos and circuses, but some were released in oh. the wild. Oh, no. Wild camels? Yeah, there were wild camels in the Southwest that were still being spotted huh. in the early 20th century. Isn't that kind of crazy? Are there still some, do you think? It, this article didn't mention there are any left but it also didn't say they're all gone necessarily but i've never seen a wild camel my neighbor had a camel in their yard but it was a domestic i mean a not wild in phoenix yeah whoa and a, i didn't think that was legal to have as a pet well phoenix is a little bit of the wild west still so it's horse <laughs> you just outed them <laughs> my neighborhood was like horse territory so people had like giant pieces of land with stables and stuff so it wasn't oh, okay. like just in like a yard that you might be thinking of in the suburbs. It's not like walking down the streets of Chicago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, what were some other ones? Oh, this one was kind of cool. So in 1914, there was a ban of alcohol aboard ships. And so the U.S. Navy was like, how do we make up for this loss of alcohol at sea for our different sailors or whatever? So 
They borrowed a refrigerated concrete barge from the Army Transportation Corps in 1945 (laughs) to serve as a floating ice cream parlor. What? And they spent a million dollars, and they towed it around the Pacific providing ice cream to ships. Okay, that's awesome. That didn't have their own ice cream making facilities, so... That is my kind of ship. They could, they could manufacture 10 gallons of ice cream every 7 minutes and had storage capacity for 2,000 gallons. Oh my god. You know who would love that? Ruby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I loved when they, like, tasted pastries for the first yeah. time, and, like, that was so I cute. Know. Yeah. Um, there are some, like, some of these are just, like, kind of crazy stories that you would never think of, but this one was, um, I need to send you a picture of this. It was called, I don't know what actually it was called, but, so, it's a floating instrument platform developed in the 1960s for (laughs) ocean research by the Office of Naval Research, and it Mm -hmm. would, it's a 355-foot flip, they call it. So, it's towed like a boat, like horizontally out to where it needs to be. And then it takes on, it's a 20 minute process. It takes on 700 tons of seawater and it goes vertical. So it looks like this Whoa. ship is like going to sink, but that's like how it's designed. Like how Titanic looked. Yeah. So once its bow is in the air, it's almost a football field worth of this vessel is underwater, which allows it to be more stable than other research ships, <laughs> I guess. So the platform okay. is all designed to work whether it's vertical or horizontal. So a lot of these rooms have like two doors or um, like the bunk beds and toilets and stoves, they said were built on different like swivels and gimbals. So they would turn when the flip turned. That's really cool. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of a cool thing to do. And it, according to this article, it was still in service and it's manned by a five person crew, but can support 11 (laughs) researchers and can be out there for a month. What a cool design feature to like have a boat turn on its side like that. And it just, it looks so funny. And I, I love that it's not just like the design of the boat, but they had to, you know, figure out, they had to put two doors in and some stuff mm-hmm. they put on like multiple walls. And I'm just imagining like it being flat and then, but also what do you do for those 20 minutes? How do you switch? I don't know. I don't know what people do on board, <laughs> but um, it's kind of cool. So, yeah, I went, again, surprise, surprise, off on a tangent about unique warships, but I we love that, basically though. have a unique warship, so. I love the razzle-dazzle thing. It made me think of, like, have you ever read the um, those Magic Eye books, where it's, know. like, a strange design, and then you look at it weirdly, oh, and yeah. it turns into a picture. I'm imagining, like, that's what they did. <laughs> so, like, the Germans were like, is that a submarine? Oh, no, it's a unicorn. <laughs> Just, like, changing the way it looked. I don't know. That's what I thought of. Well, I just love the idea, too, of these, like, artists in the war and people being like, you know, oh, you're an artist. I mean, I'm imagining all this stuff. We could really use your help right now. You know, we really need your help. And then they're like, here, let me go, like, protect all these warships. Like, I never thought someone would say that to me right now, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Love it. But, but yeah. Anyways, that was my research. Did you research anything? Uh, My research is, like, just okay. I actually, I was really struggling this week until I stumbled stumbled on Razzle Dazzle, so. (laughs) So, I really liked the story of Cora saving Laszlo and sending him through the portal as, like, kind of, it was kind of like, it reminded me of the story of Moses, really. Yeah, actually, that's a really good. mm -hmm. And, because I was trying to think of, I was like, I was like, "Are are there any other stories where, like, someone rescues a baby sends him away and then is like praying for them to come back and like he comes back and saves them all and I was like oh yeah Moses okay (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) I know that one 
So then I was just trying to see if there were any other stories of like people who grew up as orphans and then realized that they had really interesting origins. Mm -hmm. I didn't really find anything like that, but I did find an interesting story about a boy who was adopted, like a missing child who was then adopted. Okay. So, okay. (laughs) This happened in Chicago In 1964, there was a couple at a Chicago hospital whose child was stolen. Oh my goodness. From the hospital. Their baby was kidnapped out of the hospital. You know, I'm also convinced that I was put with the wrong family at the hospital. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So his mother, Dora Fronziak, had um, given birth to a baby boy and she was nursing him and then there was a woman just as a nurse who came into her hospital room and said she needed to take the baby to be examined by the doctor so of course like she gave him to her yeah which you yeah she never came back she took the baby and she never came back oh my goodness um so soon there was this like frantic search for this missing baby and the fbi got involved It was the biggest manhunt in Chicago history. Oh, my goodness. Um, There were 175,000 postal workers, 200 police officers, and the FBI. They searched 600 homes, um, and they couldn't find this baby. That's interesting that they got um, the post office workers. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah, I don't know why, but... But, I mean, think about all all the homes they go to and stuff. Yeah, totally. So then, two years later... Oh, man. The parents receive a letter from the FBI. They found a toddler in Newark, New Jersey, who matched their son's description. How could you even match a two-year-old to a an infant? infant? So they didn't have DNA testing either. So the only thing they had to go on was... Um, so they didn't have a record of his blood type, nor had the hospital had a chance to take the baby's fingerprints or footprints. So they just had one photograph of him, and they matched the shape of his ear. Oh, and they said goodness. it was very similar to an abandoned toddler. And they found this babe, this two-year-old in an abandoned stroller in a shopping center. And this is what's kind of crazy. So can you imagine, like, the FBI calling you and being like, hey, we, we found your son. But then them saying, we just based this off of a picture of his ear. I mean, no, I can't imagine that at all. Luckily, I'd be like, nowadays... How- how would you know? Like, it's not like you've had that child for a long time and, like, bonded with him and knew him. And it's not like Dumbo where his ears are so unique that... Yeah, I, don't, I, I thought that was a little strange. So they, the parents took this child, and then she basically said, this poor woman, she was like, I felt the world was watching me because this was all publicized. And she was like, I had two choices. I could either say, I'm not sure this is my child. And then the baby was an orphan. So he would go into a foster system. Like he would go into a group home or she could say, yes, that's my son. I'll take, I'll raise him. So Mm -hmm. they, they took him. Um, cause she was like, do they have any other kids? This doesn't really matter. I'm just curious. Yes, they do actually. Okay. So, um, they took him because they thought they would be saving him from potentially a Mm -hmm. unhappy life. But but they weren't, they didn't think it was their kid? Or they weren't sure? They were never sure. Okay. And what was interesting was this baby, so his, this, they named him Paul. When he was 10, he was searching through the attic and he found a bunch of articles that read, 
Um, you know, 200 people searched for stolen baby, um, baby kidnapped from hospital, and it had his name there because they were always going to name him Paul. Like, Paul Joseph was his name. And so he was uh-huh. like, wait a minute, that's me. So so they hadn't told him. Yeah, they hadn't told him. So he went and confronted his parents, and they were like, yes, you were kidnapped. And then as he grew up, he started to kind of feel like he didn't share a lot of traits with his siblings. He didn't really look like his parents. And finally, he asked them, like, have you ever suspected that I'm not yours? And they were like, yeah, like, we weren't, I mean, we, obviously we love you, but like. We, yeah, we, but you're not our biological child. Or, or we're just not sure. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he eventually did do a DNA test and found out that he wasn't theirs. Um, oh my goodness. Which, like, that had to be devastating. But also, if you've been suspecting it for so long, in some ways it might be nice to be like. Yeah, like confirmation. an answer. Like, wouldn't it be worse to be like, maybe you're my parents, maybe you're not? I guess so. Like, at least they had loved him and accepted him. I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't know. I can't imagine any of it. Yeah, he said it was pretty traumatic. Because he yeah. was just like, everything you think you know about yourself is called into question. Yeah. You know, like your birthday, yeah. your medical history, your hair, you're like, you know, where you came from. It's just. Well, yeah. No, that would be. called yeah. into question. And the DNA test said that there was no remote possibility that he was their son. Oh my goodness. Way off. So then he started looking for his real parents, and he eventually found that his parents were not that great of people. Okay. Um, I mean, they abandoned their two-year-old in a yeah. Mall so or he whatever, so. found out that his he was named Jack, and that he had a twin sister named Jill. Oh my goodness. Jack and Jill. Okay. Creative. <laughs> yeah. So that's strange to know you had a twin out there. Well, and even if your parents aren't great, wouldn't you be so curious about your siblings and stuff? Especially a twin. Your siblings. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he's, the, the people who were helping reunite him said that what's interesting is they oftentimes see complete strangers who were raised in completely different households who yet have so many similarities. So, like, he had always been drawn to music, Paul was, and, like, his the people he grew up with never showed an interest in music and he found out that his cousin was actually a musician and had a band and so he like felt a connection with that um but there was evidence that him and his biological siblings had been really badly neglected obviously since he was found abandoned and he said really they saved my life like his parents his biological parents were not very nice people and they abandoned him and he ended up being taken in by a very loving family Wow, that's so crazy, though. I can't imagine that just, like, how that, to your point, like, just wrecks your sense of identity. Yeah. And also, they never found out what happened to that actual missing baby, like, their actual biological son. Which would also just be weird to, like, name your other, like, to have held your son even for a minute and named him and then, like, like, that'd be hard as a parent, too. Even if you love this other kid, but to have it still, like, this, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that was my research. Another kind of downer story, but um, that was the best I could do. Well, this all this the genetic testing, it's like really cool to get connected with parts of your family and stuff that you mm-hmm. don't know or didn't know or I don't know. I mean, like it's kind of crazy what we can do with science these days. And that fits in with even what you were talking about. I mean, finding these half siblings and just not knowing. Yeah. That, fit well with this yeah they find half siblings book, so. and i think that was a little more related than razzle dazzle yeah <laughs> even if it wasn't as exciting i'm just kidding um well i loved how like throughout the entire story when we're learning about the god spawn they are always um 
Like, they always just have this desire to be wanted. You know, like, that's Mm -hmm. all they want is, like, for someone to love them. And so, like, I loved at the end when they were just, like, received really well and Shuela was really happy to see them. And even Errol Fane was, like, he wanted to see his daughter, you know? Yeah. As hard as it was. And that they called each other daughter and father. Yeah. Yeah. And that they both needed that on it. I mean, it wasn't just Sarai. Like, he right. kind of needed that, too, to make peace with the other babies he didn't save. Yeah, he and Minya actually are very similar characters, Errol Fane and Minya, because they both were, like, they are. so traumatized by what happened to them that they couldn't move on. And it, But the way they, like, chose to mm-hmm. live the rest of their lives was so different. And they both did something horrible in an attempt to mm-hmm. protect the people they loved and... Couldn't get past it, yeah. Couldn't, and yes, yeah, couldn't move past that day. hmm Yeah. You know what we need to do? Pick a name. Fan name. Do you have any ideas? I did think of something. Okay. I have to go through my book and find it because I will never remember how to pronounce it. But I was thinking we could be... They have a name in the language of weep Ferengi. so that's the name they have in weep to describe foreigners like people who are not from weep so we are technically Ferengi. oh yeah are we good ones or bad ones remember how they were talking about good outsiders or good oh we're Ferengi. good ones yeah. we would be we would fit in so well we would become we, friends so fast we, with ruza and calixte and i feel like i would obviously try to be their friend but i also feel like not cool enough yeah me too <laughs> I'd probably just be like really moody with Theon and hang out in the library and not come out. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be totally, I'd be all about bringing those books up from the library and I'd, they'd all respect me for how hard I work there, I guess. What are you doing in there? Alchemy. <laughs> Leave me alone. Okay. So you want to be Ferenci? Yeah, I like that. That's good. Okay, cool. Does that mean we're done with this book? Oh, do we have to read it? Oh, yeah. What are we going to rate it out of? How many pirated powers would we know? How many... <laughs> how many moths? Okay, yeah. How many moths out of ten? Yeah. What do you say? Nine. I was going to say the same. This is really, really? good. Yeah. I mean... I just I, I think this it. book was even more beautifully written than Daughter of Smoke and Bone. Well, and it was so... I mean, I love Daughter of Smoke and Bone, but... And it was cool, and I think it needed to be, you know, like it was based in our world. I loved how just how completely creative this was, mm-hmm. and I loved how it connected back to Daughter and Smoke and Bone, but it was all these different worlds, and it just, I felt really satisfied with how it all tied together, and and I even liked how it wasn't, it, it kind of was a save the world story, but it also kind of wasn't a save the world story, because it's just like this tiny mm-hmm. part of the world that, you know what I mean? Like, it, it still felt like big stakes, but it didn't feel like... Overthrowing a revolution, uh, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just love, mm-hmm. like, even in all the parts, they have, like, little words from Those we, but, like, the definitions. Mm-hmm. And even just, like, I mean, she could have very easily just numbered the chapters, but all the chapters are just these beautiful names. I think Daughter of Smoke and Bone did that, too, though. Yeah. But, yes, I do. I love that. Mm-hmm. Like, Dizzy Little Godspawn. Dread was a pale-haired goddess. Like... Well, and the funny thing was, I mean, they were beautiful names, but they were also just excerpts of that chapter. Right. Know? She just pulled Like, she things. just writes so beautifully anyways. She didn't need to, like, come up with additional creative names. She just, yeah. If stabbing were a dance. <laughs> like, it's just one extra little touch that makes it such a special book. Yeah, it really does. It's just, yeah. I have only good things to say, so Ted was the wrong <laughs> answer. A man who loves you enough to come back to you even when you're a biting ghost. 
<laughs> it's probably my favorite chapter. <laughs> my goodness. It's just it's just such a, a wonderful, wonderful book. It is. And Lonnie Taylor, man, hats off to you. You are amazing. Yeah. Be our friend. Be our friend. Teach us your ways. <sighs> but I do need a break, although we have our next book picked out, so. Ah, okay. So should we talk about the next book we're going to read? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We are going to read. going to give you a very stressful pause while I pull it up on Goodreads. <laughs> we are going to read Everless by Sarah Holland. It is a new, another duology. Uh, the second one is called Evermore, and it came out this past December, so end of 2018. And we're going to read up to chapter... 16. 67? 16. No, 16. <laughs> not 67. I don't think there's that many in this book. <laughs> I don't know where I got that. <laughs> this one is... It's not crazy long. My hard copy book is like a little under 400 pages. It's like 350 okay, pages or something. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit about our next series, Everless. In the kingdom of Sempira, time is currency, extracted from blood, bound to iron, and consumed to add time to one's own lifespan. The rich aristocracy, like the girlings, tax the poor to the hilt, extending their own lives by centuries. No one resents the girlings more than Jules Ember. A decade ago, she and her father were servants at Everless, the, the girlings' palatial estate, until a fateful accident forced them to flee in the dead of night. When Jules discovers that her father is dying, she knows she must return to Everless to earn more time for him before she loses him forever. But going back to Everless brings more danger and temptation than Jules could ever have imagined. Soon she's caught in a tangle of violent secrets and finds her heart torn between two people she thought she'd never see again. Her decisions have the power to change her fate and the fate of time itself. Interesting. Cool premise. Yeah. I actually, I haven't heard a ton about this book, but I am excited to see how it is. Me Although too. I feel, I feel a little bit bad that it's coming after Lonnie Taylor. Ugh, I know. I, I'm going to have a massive book hangover. I know. And it's just, it's hard to live up to Lonnie Taylor. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully it, uh, I do need a break. <laughs> yeah. I need something a little less all-consuming. Every chapter, bang, bang, bang. It's yeah. taking over my entire mind, yeah, where I can't think of anything <laughs> else. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm excited. And I also, I always think it is interesting to go from reading, like, an author that we know and love and be able to compare that to other stuff they've done. And this is, I think this is her first book. So, you know, it'll be cool to, I, I have a lot of respect and appreciation for people who can make a book and a series and all that. So. Same here. It'll be fun to learn about her. Yeah. All right. I have a joke for you. Okay. This made me laugh out loud today at my desk. Okay, I'm excited. All right. What do you call a retired miner? Um, I don't know. What? Doug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dumb. I Isn't love it. Great? <laughs> and I love when it takes me. I had the aha moment that is so great about a dad joke. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had a friend slash fan share a joke as well. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. It's just a one-liner. She said, I ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon. I'll let you know. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Okay. Anything else? Are we? Oh, if you have a dad joke or a book suggestion or just want to talk about news of nightmares for the rest of our lives, um, you can reach out to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com or on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. 
We'd love to hear everything you have to say about Muse of Nightmares. And you can send your own Razzle Dazzle ship. Oh, yeah. Send us your designs for warships. Or if you have a crazy (laughs) adoption story. Yeah. Or a fun revelation through genetic testing story Mm, or whatever. mm -hmm. All good topics. All right. On that note, bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.